Good morning. Let's uh, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We ask that you would send your spirit and angels that our minds can be enlightened to see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the title this week is, The Fruit of the Spirit is Righteousness. And if someone would read the bottom paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, beginning, We understand righteousness in two ways. Somebody read that paragraph for us. We understand the righteousness in two ways. First, there is the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is what Jesus has done for us, the righteousness that covers us, and that is our title to heaven. Second, there is the imparted righteousness of Christ, which is what he does in us, through the Holy Spirit, to mold us into his image. Thus understood, righteousness has two inseparable components, even though it is all really one righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, without which we would have no hope of salvation. If you read this along, this is a, a fairly traditional Protestant Christian description of righteousness. What did you all think of it? Imputed versus imparted. Has it always been crystal clear to you? No. no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, I like it. Imputed versus imparted. Do you notice how it suggested imputed uh, in righteousness, which is what Jesus has done for us, the righteousness that covers us and is our title to heaven, which is different than imparted righteousness that they say is what the Holy Spirit does in us to mold us and make us. Well, we're talking about, and they te- give us the, the uh, text here about uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. And, and there is a, a scriptural text there that uh, they refer us to in Ephesians 5, 9. The fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So the fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. When you think about a fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, what, is, what does that mean, the fruit of the Spirit? Where do you see the fruit of the Spirit? That's the description of them. Where do you see fruits? Where do fruits arise? Okay, so when it says the fruit of the Spirit is righteousness, where would you expect to see that fruit? In people. So maybe the lesson is, is describing that as the imparted righteousness. That's where the fruit is, is the imparted part. Maybe they're meaning something else by, by imputed righteousness, something that's often referred to as something that is credited or accounted to us. Have you ever heard that before? Imputed righteousness is credited or accounted. And where this, uh, where this sometimes arises is out of, out of Romans chapter 4, 22 through 24, speaking about Abraham. And this is what it says in the King James Version. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to reform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for ours also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Is that really clear to everybody? No. No, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what that means. So let's look at the NIV. Maybe that helps clear it up for us. Being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he has promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but for also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So this is where this idea of imputed righteousness is something which is accounted or credited comes from. What do you think about this idea? Well, as you look at this, 
What came first in the text in Romans? And hopefully you have your Bibles and are following along. Abraham trusting God or the credit, accounting, imputing? Which came first? Abraham's trust or the imputing, crediting? Okay, so without trusting God, there's no imputing or crediting, is there? And what happens to somebody when we actually trust God? What happens in the person who trusts God? Do they surrender self to God when they trust Him? And when we surrender self, do we open the heart? And does the Holy Spirit come in? Can there actually be a crediting without a indwelling and changing? Can you get crediting without indwelling and changing? I'm curious about that. Is it possible? For somebody to be credited righteous without being transformed to be righteous. Is that a possibility? Well, let's, let's, let's see. Maybe it would help us if we knew the Greek here that's used to trans, translate either credited or, ca- or counted. And the Greek word is logizamia, something like that. I can't speak Greek. But it's, and you can hear the lo, logia, it's something related to the word we get logical from. And the definition, according to the Strong's lexicon, it's 41 occurrences in the scripture this, this word is used. And it translates as think nine times, impute eight times, reckon six times, count five times, account four times, suppose twice, reason once, number once, and then miscellaneous five times. And here's the definitions it gives. Pass to one's account to impute. A thing is reckoned as to be something. To reckon inward, count up or weigh the reasons to deliberate. By reckoning up all the reasons to gather or infer. To consider or take into account, to weigh, to meditate on. To suppose, deem, or judge. To determine, purpose, or decide. And then they give this little note. It says, this word deals with reality. If I logizomia, or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. When you think about that, this accounting, this imputing, is it connected to actually the facts of what's happening in the believer? Or is it counting something that isn't happening in the believer? Hmm. But isn't it always there and we just have to accept it? Isn't it imputed always there? But it's whether or not we accept it. Uh, well, we certainly have that choice, don't we? The imputed righteousness was, was imputed or accounted. Was Abraham accounted or imputed as righteous, according to the Romans text we just read, before he trusted God? No. Or was it because he trusted God, he was accounted righteous? Because. Isn't that what the text said? Yeah, so let's read some texts from one of the founders of our church. How, how she used this word imputed and see if it gives us any additional flavors or insights into what this imputed righteousness means. Because there is this idea that the lesson alludes to that imputed righteousness is a legal accounting mechanism done in heaven in the record books. And that it's imputed to you, you get checkmarked, counted righteous, and then later you're imparted and changed and made righteous. This is out of God's Amazing Grace 181. Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. God pronounces us just and treats us as just. He looks upon us as his dear children. 
Christ works against the power of sin, and where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. So the words, having made us righteous through Christ, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, is being made righteous different than being declared or accounted or credited as righteous? Is made something that you're actually doing. The metaphor in scripture is leprosy. Leprosy, I think we all know, is a metaphor for sin, right? And when somebody is cured of leprosy, they then had to go to the priest, so the priest could do what? Declare them them clean. Did they get declared clean before they were actually cleansed from from, from leprosy? Or did the declaration come after the cleansing? When Christ cleansed the lepers, he told them to go to the priest, offer the proper sacrifices, and be declared clean. But which came first? The actual healing. The actual freeing from the leprosy. Here's another one. God's amazing grace, page 96. But we all, with open face, behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as for hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we take him as our personal Savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. Now get this. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. What does that sound like is happening? A, a credit? Or an actual changing process? A renewing? A rewriting of the heart? A regeneration? Well, there, it actually gets more clear. Listen to this, Our High Calling, page 364. We aim too low. Now, I want you to think the question. We aim too low. Where would a low aim be? Think that through, because I'm going to come back to it. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion, that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. What does it mean to attain? Is attainment different than accounting or credit? So is the imputed righteousness something that helps us attain? Yes. The imputed and imparted righteousness are like a pair of shoes. They have to be distinguished, but they always have to be together. They should never be separated. That is what is commonly taught. And I'm going to suggest that maybe these are synonyms. That imputed and imparted are synonyms for the same process of Christ's righteousness being rebuilt into the believer. But then where is your confidence if you're looking at your performance and you recognize you're not, am I righteous then? When I look at myself, don't I have to trust in one who covers my deficiencies with his righteousness? And that's a great, great language to use because it's in the lesson and we're going to talk about that today. What does it mean to be covered with the righteousness of Christ? Covered with the righteousness. It's, we've got some great quotes that describe that. Exact. In fact, I'll just jump to it since you brought it up right now, but we'll have to hit it again in the context of our lesson flow. But here it is, Christ Object Lessons, page 311. Covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness. Here's what she says it means. 
The robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. So there we go. We don't have to work to make ourselves righteous. It's not something we can do in our own strength. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart, here's impart, impart to us. All our righteousness is filthy rags. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifest to take away the sins. And in himself is no sin. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commands. Here's your issue about covering. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. So what does it mean to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness? Does it sound like there's something happening actually in the mind, thoughts, will, character of the believer? Is it something that just covers over? Or is it something that regenerates from within? We we have all rejected the human legalism. I can work my way to heaven. We all know, step one, we are sick, we're terminal, in sin, born in sin, conceived in our iniquity, dead in our trespasses in sin. We are dying terminal in sin and we cannot cure ourselves. There is nothing we can do to fix the problem. We all know that. And so any theory that comes along and says, we've got to work hard, we've got to keep the commandments, we've got to eat right, we've got to watch the Sabbath, we've got to do all this stuff, and then we'll work our way into heaven, is a lie, it's a fraud, we can't do it. Everybody agreed. And that's traditional legalism, and we've kind of thrown that off. We realize that doesn't work. But there's this other thing, this heavenly legalism. And what's heavenly legalism? That God sent his son to pay a legal penalty in order for God to be able to pardon and legally set us free. And then you can have your record books in heaven stamped with legal pardon. And then you have your security to heaven because you have accepted his blood payment. And as long as you have his blood payment stamped by your book in heaven, then you have your legal right to heaven. This is common Christianity. And it takes various permutations like, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I accepted his blood payment. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I can't be lost now. Because all sins, past, present, and future, were paid by Jesus Christ at the cross. And that payment is full and complete. There's nothing more that can be paid. And guess what happens when people take that, that approach? No exactly. And, 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 and if you actually talk to them, they'll tell you, there is no victory over sin. We continue to sin until the day Christ comes. There's no victory. There's no deliverance until, until glorification that we continue to live participating actively. But if you read Scripture, Scripture is all about victory. It's, his name shall be called Emmanuel, for he shall save his people in their sin. From their sin. Oh, from their sin. From their sin. We are to have a new heart and a right spirit. We have the law written in the heart and mind. When does the law get written in the heart and mind? Is that something that happens at the second coming? Or does it happen before the second coming that the law gets written in the heart and mind? Do we get a new heart and right spirit at the second coming or before the second coming? And if we're getting all this regenerating, indwelling spirit, law written in the heart and mind, is that healing and transforming? It's bringing us that we just read our thoughts into harmony with his thoughts. We live his life. Let's read some more of these these quotes because I really wanted to, to share these with you. How she uses these words. This is out of That I May Know Him, page 206. Now listen to this. He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What would that mean, remove defiling stains from the workmanship of God? Trees, flowers, simply? 
or human beings. Okay? To, to remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God and to reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. What's that describing? Is that not describing an absolutely regenerated, retransforming, making us originally pure again? Is that more than just accrediting? More than just accounting? And I'm going to suggest, I think these words are fairly synonymous, imparting and imputing. It's God's work. But let's keep going. The definition of this word translated accounting or imputing, this definition of reckoning that my book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. Do you find how Ellen White uses this word imputed is in harmony with that definition? That imputed is a fact. It's a reality. It's something that happens in the believer. And for balance, here's another imparting statement. And this is out of that I may know him, page 78. I really like this one. Think through the implications of what this means. It says, the Lord loves his people. And when they put their trust in him, remember what Abraham did in Romans 4? What did he do? He trusted and it was reckoned or recognized or counted as righteousness. Because what happens when we trust? Does something happen in our heart when we trust God? Do we give him permission to come in with his spirit? Does the spirit begin regenerating and renewing? Yes. Okay. So we put our trust in him, depending wholly upon him. He strengthens them. He will live through them, giving them the inspiration of his sanctifying spirit, imparting to the soul a vital transfusion. I think that's a transfusion. When you get a transfusion, what is that? A vital transfusion of himself, of himself. He acts through their faculties and causes them to choose his will and to act out his character. With the Apostle Paul, then they may say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What do you hear happening? Transformation. Is that scary? No. Is it frightening? No. Not if you trust. No. Oh, hear what he said. Not if you trust. And you see, get this. What would it require to experience what I just read? Would it not require death to self? What happened if you love yourself? How about if you have a certain dream? How about if you have certain goals? How about if you have certain, certain aspirations for yourself? Do you want to turn all that over to the Lord? Do you want to let Him make those choices and guide? Is it scary to think about doing that? Some of you are shaking your head, no, it shows maturity. When I was 19, I remember being scared. I remember people telling me, you need to surrender your life to Christ. Let him choose your life partner for you. And I'm going, no way. No way. I remember this. No, I might have been the only one in here that had those fears. But it showed how much I didn't trust him. Which showed how much I didn't know him. Because he would have made much better choices than I made. And I would have had a much less traumatic and bumpy road in my life. But what is it that, that this is telling us? And I think this is why people like the legal version. Because the legal version, we can still stay in control of ourselves, make our own choices, and all of our mistakes, well, they're paid for, and we can just keep making them because we got them paid for. We don't actually have to trust and transform. So where, where do you think this confusion about imputed and parted and this whole thing came from? Um, and having all this kind of, I think, legal overtones. Listen out of Faith and Works, page 18. 
It says, the danger has been presented to me again. And by the way, a synonym for imputed righteousness is justification by faith. Justification by faith and imputed righteousness, theologically, are synonyms. They both just describe the same thing. The danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people false ideas of justification by faith or imputed righteousness. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. I have been shown that many have been kept from the faith because of the mixed, confused ideas of salvation, because the ministers have worked in a wrong manner to reach hearts. The point that has been urged upon my mind for years is the imputed righteousness of Christ. See, she uses the justification by faith, imputed righteousness of Christ. I have wondered that this matter has not been made the subject of discourses in our churches throughout the land when the matter has been kept so constantly urged upon me, and I have made it the subject of nearly every discourse and talk that I have given to the people. Now, what do, you, what do you hear in here? Ministers are misrepresenting the teaching by misrepresenting the law of God as destitute from Christ. That's what she said. Destitute from Christ. The law. So does this sound like they're not presenting the law? Or they are presenting the law? And she says, it ends up looking like something Cain did. But she said, as destitute as was the offering of Cain. Now, what did Cain do? Did he try to pay his way? Make a payment, a legal payment? Is she suggesting that maybe this whole righteousness, imputed thing, justification by faith is misunderstood because we present a legal model? A payment model? Rather than infusing it with Jesus Christ, who is the heart and soul of it all? And that we are to be infused ourselves with Jesus Christ, and he is to dwell in us, and that's really the message of righteousness by faith? That when we trust him as Abraham does, we open the heart, the Holy Spirit comes in, and we are infused with the presence of Christ through his spirit, and we are transformed. Sunday's lesson, middle question, says, if we cannot be justified by the law, then how are we justified? Well, can somebody tell me what justification is? What does it mean to be justified? Okay, I heard this one over here, set right. What? Anything else? Yes. Well, I'm sorry to say this at the end of that question, but the law, I think, is as much confusing as justification is. And back to the last discussion that you just had, the last words that you were just saying. The law always refers to the Ten Commandments. But in here we've learned that the law refers to the character of God, the love of God. And when you think of, if you read that, if we cannot be justified by love, how that can be justified, we actually can't. But the confusion comes from confusing what the law is, the law of God. And we always read, whenever we hear the law, we always, at least, I've always thought of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can't do anything to change my life. But the love of God, the law of love, can and I think it's a great point. When Paul wrote in Romans, he was writing to a, an audience in which that had been steeped in the Jew, Jewish mindset. Now, how did the Jewish mindset view this whole thing? 
And he was constantly battling the Judaizers. The Judaizers were constantly coming in with all these rules and observations and legal things and requirements of the law. And it was both ceremony and, and Ten Commandment law. And he's constantly battling this. So the law, as in the New Testament, uh, uh, when Paul's battling this, when he says, and he says, there's no righteousness by keeping the law, he's talking about that type of thing. Uh, our working to obey the rules does not change our heart. But your point is excellent in that the law of God is what? The law of love. Christ himself and the scriptures all teach those who love do right. There is no transgression for those who are in love. Uh, All the law and the prophets hang on. What two things? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. And so the law of love is actually the ultimate law of the universe uh, emanating from God's character of which the Ten Commandments are a transcript given for our need. What was the need of the Ten, Ten Commandments? What was its purpose? To show us what our condition was. Ah, she says, to show us our condition. It says the law was given so that sin might abound or increase. What does that mean? Not really so we have more sin. It's so that we would see more sin. If you're sick and you got cancer and you throw somebody at an MRI scanner, what's the MRI scanner allow you to see? More cancer. It doesn't make more cancer. It just allows you to see more cancer. Okay, so the Ten Commandments were given so that we could diagnose the real sickness of the human condition. That the sickness and, and, and terminal state of humanity would be seen. And thus we can't be saved by appeasing the MRI scanner. Take an offering into the MRI scanner after it scans you with, and finds a tumor in your lungs, it's not going to help. Appeasing the law doesn't help. Does it? And you will find this commonly taught. Christ had to die to make a payment to the law. Think that through. The law's purpose. Given, according to scripture, to diagnose our sickness. It says in Timothy, the law was not given for the righteous. uh, It was given for the wicked, for the murderer, for the adulterer. It wasn't given for the righteous. Why? the, the, The MRI scanner is not built for the healthy people. It's built for the sick people. To diagnose and expose the sickness. Those who are healthy don't need to go in the scanner. It's those who are sick. And so the law was given for us to diagnose our sickness. But once we're diagnosed as terminal, and this is what Paul said, I I thought I was righteous until I read the commandment, and then I realized how sick I really was, what a sinner I really was. And the commandment that he read, the one that he cites as being the one that convicted him, the tenth commandment. Why the tenth? Why did he? Why did the tenth commandment get Paul? Bring him to his knees. Well, it does include all the others. It certainly does. Because why? It's what we think about. Yes. So you notice all the first nine commandments can be observed behaviorally. You can have no other gods before you, not take his name in vain, not build any images, keep the Sabbath, honor mother and father, not murder, not commit adultery, not bear false witness, um, and not steal. You can do all those behaviorally. What behavior can you do? To not covet. Whoa, wait a minute. You mean I got to change my heart too? See, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought what, what real righteousness was when you really, really lusted longly after your neighbor's wife, but you restrained yourself and didn't act on it, then you were righteous. What the tenth did is say, no, you're not even supposed to want to do that in your heart in the first place. And Paul realized how sick and sinful he really was. And so this is what the law did. And you can't go and make an appeasement and a payment to the Ten Commandments and have that somehow change your heart. This is what the question in the quarterly is. If we cannot be justified by the law, then how are we justified? What does it mean to be justified? Yes. Can I, can I jump back just yes. a little bit? Uh, I think one of the things that I, uh, maybe I wrongly believe 
was that uh, the difference between the two points is to help me understand that uh, at what point am I saved? How much righteousness do I have to have before I'm saved? And if righteousness is viewed as a process through which I go, and it's only viewed as a process, then the question arises, well, at which point in this process can I be considered, okay, you're good to go? And, and if I put a difference between at the beginning when I start the process, I'm already good to go, and then the rest of the process is just making me better, then I have some assurance that I don't have to reach a point. I have, at the beginning of this process, when I start the treatment, I'm already allowed in the hospital. I don't have to be 50% healthy before I'm allowed in, or, 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 or something like that. I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Everybody follow what his concern is. Yeah, so this is the concern that all of us as human beings have. What's going to happen to me? And I think that's what the difference was, at least when it was taught to me, between imputed and imparted. Yep, no, I, I hear you. Because our primary concern is what's going to happen to me. That's our primary concern. This is our, this, and that is the infection of sin. Sin puts who first? Me. And so we create theologies that put who at the center? Me. It's all about us. It's for our sake. And so even in Christianity, we've got egocentric Christianity. Self-centered Christianity. It's about me, primarily. You'll notice, and, and it's in the lesson, um, in, as we go through, I think the answer becomes evident to allay the fears that we have. But as we sinners come to actually experience the healing of Christ in our lives, guess where our focus changes? Guess, guess who's not important anymore? When Moses, at age 40... Remember what he did at age 40 of significance? He murdered somebody. At age 80, God is threatening to wipe out the people. What is Moses' action here? Well, he offers his life. He's, willing to give, he's not worried about himself anymore. What happened? How did this person who's willing to kill another go to, a, go to a place that he's now willing to give his life for others? What about Saul before his conversion on Damascus Road? What was he doing? He was persecuting the church. After Damascus Road, he writes, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. What happened? What transpired? What, what, what occurred? Did something happen different in him? There's definitely a process, but when was he accepted as part of, of the fall? Or, or at what point could he believe that, that I don't have to fret about losing eternal life anymore? But the, but the point I'm making is, um, as, as long as we're still focused on ourselves, we still got problems, don't we? Still about me. We're still seeing a negative picture of God. I think the difference between Moses and Paul was they saw a difference in God. Can you go to God right now and say, God, I love you. I recognize what an incredible universe you have. How beautiful the universe will be is when every being is just like Jesus Christ. I trust you so much that I'm going to tell you, Lord, if the universe would be worse off with me there, don't bring me. Can you say that to him? No, no. Hey, listen, I claim the blood. I have a right. You better bring me. Can we die to self that we can say and surrender our life to him and say, it's okay. I trust you with my life, Lord. Bring me. Don't bring me. It's in your hands. I just want you to have, I want your universe to be the universe you want it to be. I want your universe to be the way you designed it to be. And if I end up being an affecting element that, that hurts people and damages uh, intelligent beings and misrepresents your name, don't bring me. Are we at that point? Do we trust him that much? Should we? Is my question irrelevant? 
Yes. That's why it's so important to know who God is, because in order to trust him, we have to know that he's a loving God and doesn't punish us for our sins. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, describing those ready to meet Jesus when he comes. This is what they will look like at translation. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What is that describing? They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. Who are they not watching out for anymore? Who are they not trying to promote anymore? Who are they not trying to protect anymore? See, they're like Moses and like Paul. They've come to the point that they're willing to give their lives for God's cause. Are we at that point? Should we be? Your question still is is, is pertinent, and I think it gets answered here as we go along. So justification, what does it mean to be justified? Well, if you have a word processor on your computer and you justify the margins, what have you done? You've taken what was out of line and put it in line, right? Taken what was out of harmony, put it in harmony. Question, when Adam sinned, what was no longer aligned or in harmony or right that needed to be put right? What was, what was wrong that needed setting right? Was God wrong and needed to be set right? Was the law wrong and needed to be set right? Was humanity wrong, out of harmony, broken, sick, twisted, deformed, that needed to be fixed and set right? So does justification have anything to do with actual, actual fixing of humanity? Yes. Or is it simply fixing of the accounting books? Or is it actual fixing humanity? Paul said that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. Did Christ actually become a sinner? Or was he counted as a sinner? Neither, actually. Neither. She said, did Christ become a sinner or simply be counted as a sinner? It was actually neither. It was something else entirely. And let's talk about what it was. Because he did become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Exactly right. Beautiful statement. What does it mean? What does it mean? How did Christ become sin? Humanity. After mankind fell into sin, could any human being that came out of the the loins of Adam and Eve fix themselves? Or every sinner was born, it says in Psalms 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, were born inherently out of harmony with God's law. Is that true or false? That's all human beings. Now, was God capable, if he wanted to, to create a new creation, something other than humanity that was still sinless and pure? If he wanted to, he could still do that, couldn't he? Would that fix humanity? No. No. So in order to fix humanity, he couldn't just create a new human being. That would be a new creation. He had to actually partake of humanity. And in his own person... Reverse what happened. Fix it. Destroy. And so let's see how he did that. Adam came into the world as God formed dirt into a man and breathed into the nostrils, breath of life, a perfect sinless being, Eve taken from his side. Yes? Did Jesus' humanity come into the world this way? No. You and I came into the world, sinful mother, sinful father, as we said, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world exactly that way? No. No. Jesus had a sinful mother, Galatians 4.4, born of a woman under law, Law of sin and death. But who was Jesus, the Father, that provided the creation for Jesus' humanity? The Holy Spirit came upon the woman. So Jesus is now a unique blend of both our sinful nature and God's righteousness or righteous character in the human brain, Jesus Christ. Now let's put some other texts together. Can divinity be tempted by evil? 
If you're not sure, James chapter 1, verse 13 says, No one should say God tempts, because God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted by evil. So God can't be tempted. Was Jesus tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin? Yes. Yes. So all temptation of Christ was not temptation of his divine nature. It was temptation of his human nature. Now, it says in, in Hebrews um, chapter 4.15 that he was tempted in every way just like we are. Every way. Do we believe that to be true? Yes. James chapter 1 verse 14 says that each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Is that true? Yes. Are both of the texts true? Jesus tempted every way just like us and we're tempted by our own desires. Then did Jesus have human desire that tempted him? Yes, he did. Garden of Gethsemane. Did Jesus experience incredible, more than anyone in this room has ever or ever will experience, human emotions that anguished him and tempted him? And what did the emotions tempt him to do? To save himself and not go through the cross. But he said, notice, this is very important. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. I will lay it down. And I will take it up again. Why is that important? What are the two antagonistic principles at war in the human race? Maybe you are familiar with education. I think it's page 170. The student should learn learn to view the word as a whole. Taking all the various parts to the grand central theme. The origin of uh, the the, the, uh, creation of man. The origin of sin. The the great controversy. uh, The great consummation she talks about. And then how the two antagonistic principles enter every phase of human existence. What two antagonistic principles is she talking about? God's law of love. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Other-centered love, which is the heart of God, his nature, God is love, which means I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for your good and welfare and health, including if it comes down to it, give my life that you might live. That's what Jesus did. At war, Satan's principle of selfishness in the world today, known as survival of fittest, I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Give my life that you might live, kill you that I might live. Do each of us struggle with these two motives? Only, the only, and the only reason we struggle is because the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit infuses us with love. We don't have it originally in our hearts anymore, do we? No. Okay? And so we have these two principles. Did Christ have these two principles that warded out in his humanity? Yes. yes. He lived perfect love. And thus the two, the two antagonistic principles came face to face in that weekend, Gethsemane and the cross. And on the cross you see it, in Gethsemane you see it, he's being tempted with human emotion to save himself. But each time the temptation comes, he gives himself in love. And then at the cross, was he, temp- was he tempted both by satanic agencies and human agencies? Hey, you saved others, come down off the cross, we'll believe on you. Save yourself. Save yourself. Why don't you save yourself? If he uses his power to save self... What happens? Sin is not destroyed. Love does not win. He cannot save self. The only way to destroy the carnal nature was to give himself perfectly in love. In a human brain. This is key. In a human brain. A human being did this. And now we have a human being 
who has never violated God's law, who has been harmony with God's character of love, and not only did he reestablish the perfect character of God in man by his life, he destroyed the carnal nature and left it in the grave, if you want to put it that way. How did he do it? Well, let's look at the text. Hebrews 2.14, that Christ took upon himself human flesh that he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So one of the reasons Christ died was to destroy Satan and his power. 2 Timothy 1.10, that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. What is the basis of death? Because Christ destroyed death. Does it say that we are dead in our trespasses and sins? Our, our, our nature is dead. Those who don't accept Christ stand condemned already. Those who accept Him are not condemned. Notice our condition is inherently terminal. The human condition, the carnal mind, is terminal. It will die unless remedied. Christ came and destroyed that selfishness, that desire to seek self. He destroyed it and restored perfectly in the human condition, in the human brain, God's law of love. Thus, the human species, the species known human, was set right with God again in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus set us right. He put us right. He restored us perfectly into harmony. Not you and me, the individual person, the species known as human, was restored perfectly to harmony with God in Jesus Christ. And now it says in Hebrews 5.8 that once he was made perfect, notice those words, and you can look it up in your scriptures, Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect, he became the source. Once he completed the mission, perfecting human character, destroying the carnal nature, exposing the lies of Satan, and 1 John 3.8, that by his death he destroyed Satan's or the devil's work. And what is the work of the devil? To efface the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God's belongs. That is the devil's work. Yes? That's how we're born again. We're born through Jesus instead of That's exactly right. And when he is the vine, we are the branches. Once we're connected to him, we get, as we read earlier, the transfusion of his righteousness. Listen to this quote out of Desire of Ages 762 and see if it doesn't bring home everything I said and bring it all together. It says, this is Desire of Ages 762. It says, the law requires a death penalty to be paid so the blood payment can be made to your account. That's what the law requires. No, this is what it says. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Will you receive them? Isn't that the question? Will you receive this gift of Christ's perfect life? His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through. What do you think? Traditional model would say we have remission of sins passed through the payment made. Notice what she says. We have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. He's free to forgive. More than this, 
Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Is that not saying what I just said? What does the law require? Why? Maybe we should answer the question. Why does the law require righteousness? A righteous life. Why? If you don't understand why, it'll be confusing. Why? To put us back in harmony with God's character. Why is that necessary? That's the way we were designed. That's the way we or life is designed to operate. God is love. Everything he creates is held together by him. It was made for him, is held together by him. And it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's divine nature is seen through what he has made so that men are without excuse. Through what is made. What is made. What does that mean? What is made? Creation, right? We Creation. We can look and see the nature of God. And the nature of God is love. And this is that law of love we've talked about in here so many times. Other-centered beneficence or giving, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. And as we, all the other texts, for God to love the word, he gave, he gave, he gave. Love is giving. It's other-centered. This is the law. And I'm going to suggest to you, it's not a rule imposed. It is a design template upon which life is constructed to run. And we see this in the breath that we take. We give away carbon dioxide. And the plants give back oxygen to you. Another never-ending circle of giving. Electricity, electrons can only flow as long as there is complete circle for giving. If you break the circle, electrons can't flow. The lights go out, brain circuits die. They can only flow with complete circles of giving. The Old Testament sanctuary service, when the sinner would confess hands on the, on the head of the animal, he would, after sin was attached, cut the circulation. Life is in the blood and it circles, it just circles, it just circles. Never any circle of giving. This is the design template for life. In an economy, for an economy to be healthy and alive and vibrant, the money has to be in circulation take the money out of circulation it dies this is the law of life it's the design template why does the law require righteousness well if I were to say the law requires breathing this man doesn't do well Christ came in the form of man and developed perfectly healthy lungs and breathes perfectly would you say well that's an arbitrary law why would you have to breathe why should we have to breathe Because it's the way life is designed. It's the construction template. It can't exist otherwise. And so the universe is designed to operate in harmony with God's character of love. It is the principle of all living. And so this is why the law requires it. And deviations from it result in what? And so selfishness, which is taking, which is hoarding, which is me first rather than you first, tie a plastic bag over your head so you can hoard and keep all your carbon dioxide. Because you're going to break the law, the law of giving, the law of respiration. You're going to break it. What's going to happen? God will send an angel down to torture you in hell. No. Life is not compatible with the broken law. This is why Christ came, to put the human species back in perfect harmony. And he rebuilt humanity in his own person to be exactly what God designed the human race in Adam to be. Adam was to become that and could have but he didn't so Christ came as the second Adam to destroy the carnal nature Adam infected the world with and to restore the image of God perfectly in man you've mentioned the downside of imparted righteousness and that is Jesus gives me his righteousness so I can continue sinning and I don't need to be transformed 
There's a downside also to imparted righteousness taken by itself. That is, that Christ transforms me. And I think this brother here was referring to it. When in the process, I can either become terribly depressed when I see that I am not fully reflecting the character of Christ and give up. Or I can become proud and say, well, I haven't sinned for five years now, <laughs> in which case I'm really blown it. And both of those examples puts the focus where? Well, you're trying to throw it out somewhere else, but I... No, I'm not trying to throw it out somewhere else. I'm telling you, we are so inherently egocentric that we want to make everything about us all the time. That is the sin problem. We want to make it about us. What's going to happen to me? I'm either working hard to be righteous. I'm either afraid that I don't have security in heaven forever. I'm either claiming perfection when I'm not. It's all about me. Every way we cut it, we always make it about us. It's not. But for this security question, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in, at the late chapter, going into verse 6, it says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is a concern that we have peace with God. I'll get to your justified by faith. It says, um, We have much to say about it, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk... Still being an infant, guess what they're not acquainted with? They are not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. See, those on milk, those babes, aren't understanding, they're not acquainted, they're not familiar with righteousness. Keep going. But solid food is for the mature who by constant uh, use has trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Repentance from acts that lead to death. What is that saying? Where's the focus? My behavior. My sins. I need to repent for my bad acts. Elementary. Don't have a clue about righteousness now. When we're focusing there, we don't know justification by faith. We don't know imputed and parted righteousness. We're babies on milk. We know Christ loves us. We know he did something to save us. Have no clue what it was. So, Jesus, please forgive me. I blew it again. Please forgive me. Oh, I got my forgiveness today. Help me have a better life tomorrow. And every day. I, I sinned again today. Help me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Babes. Spiritual milk. It's time to grow up. That's what Paul's saying. We have peace with God when we are justified or set right. What is it that's wrong that needs to be set right? Our view of God. Our view of God. Thank you very much. Bam! Right on. Hebrews 2.14. Christ died that he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Anybody know what the devil's power is? Did you know he had the power of death? What is it? Yeah, John 17, 3, life eternal is knowing God. Knowing God, life eternal. So then what's eternal death? Not knowing God. So what's the devil's power of death? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. And so Christ came to destroy those lies. And when we are one back, and this goes right back to the text in Romans chapter 4 we started the class with. Why was Abraham recognized as righteous? Because he trusted God. The question of righteousness and when you, are, when you can have security for your salvation is when you've come to trust God with your life. You can frame it from a non-personal perspective. Is that heaven is going to be full of righteous people. At what point? 
where along that process are they in this righteous process? They are in heaven. They are righteous. Where in the process are they? Um, I'm not sure that question. Because they won't get to heaven until they've been renewed and have... 100% renewed? Yep. So the thief on the cross, he was completely 100% renewed right there on the spot. Was he completely transformed at that point? Yes. In his ability to trust God with his life. And that's the key. That's where I was getting to with Moses, getting to with Paul. See, the elementary teachings are, what behaviors do I have to do? Have I gotten all the right foods in my diet? We've gotten all the bad ones out. Did I get all the, right, the, the wrong things off my body? I'm not wearing those earrings anymore. Got that bracelet gone. Did I get my tattoo laser removed? Did I, uh, you know, did I do all these right things? Elementary teachings. We don't have to do that stuff. So everybody who's in heaven has already completed these righteousness process. The issue is... No, no. It's, it's not acts. It is genuine, complete surrender of self. So it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The thief on the cross surrendered himself in genuine trust to Christ. And that's the key. And that's why it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, those that are ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love self so much as to shrink from death. Self isn't there anymore. Self is dead. I'm assuming you would encourage class members three, like Great Controversy, to discuss this, a lot of these issues in great detail. That's correct, right? Sure. Okay. I would encourage the class members to do that as well. I think there's a lot of detail there that could help us all. Yeah, read widely. As I've told you before, never believe anything because I say it. My goal is to get you to think for yourself. And as you read widely, take as many pieces of the puzzle your brain can handle. We get in trouble when we take a little bit here and a little bit there. We want to read as widely as we can through this process. And the more pieces we bring in, then the clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer the picture gets. But righteousness is a heart issue being changed from selfishness to loving God and loving others. And then from, it says that make a tree good and the fruit will be good, make a tree bad and its fruit will be get bad. From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The evil man brings forth evil from the evil to sort up in him and the righteous man brings forth righteousness from the righteous sort up in him. So when we have the heart changed by the spirit, guess what happens to the behavior? The, I think the reason he said imparted and imputed or synonyms, the reason that we've got this difference between them comes from Focusing or comes from a misunderstanding about God. If we saw God the way he really is, a God of love, a God that is out there not judging us, not needing to make a legal change in things, needing to make a healing change in things, imputed and imparted no longer become an issue. But imputed and imparted distinction comes from a misunderstanding about God. I agree with you completely. And also a misunderstanding about his law, an enacted law versus a natural law. Right. Okay, and uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 312, which is in, um, it's actually quoted in our lesson, page on Tuesday's lesson, last paragraph, it says this. Righteousness is right doing, and it is by their deeds that they will be judged. Our characters are revealed by what we do. The works show whether, we, whether the faith is genuine. The, just from those quotes that I just said. Why do the works, why do the deeds, what's the connection between works and deeds? This is out of early writings, page 52. Somebody quoted this, this to me recently and asked me if I believed it. After the saints are changed to immortality and caught up together with Christ, after they receive their harps, their robes, and their crowns, and enter the city, Jesus and the saints sit in judgment. The books are open, the books of life and the books of death. The books of life contain the good deeds of the saints, and the books of death contain the evil deeds of the wicked. These books are compared with the statute books of the Bible, and according to that, men are judged. Somebody asked me if I believe that. Do you think the quote I just read, do you think that sheds light on what's recorded in the books? 
Is it just deeds? A list of behaviors? Listen to this. This is another quote. Maranatha, page 340. That's why you have to read widely. Angels of God are taking a daguerreotype, which is a photograph. A photograph of the character, just as accurately as the artist takes the likeness of the human features. And it is from this that we are judged. When the judgment shall sit and the book shall be opened, there will be many astonishing disclosures. Men will not then appear as they appear to the human eyes in finite judgment. Secret sins will then be laid open to the view. Motives and intentions which have been hidden in the dark chambers of the heart will be revealed. All will appear as a real life picture. So what's recorded in the books? Character. Character. Here's another one. Testimonies of Ministers 429. Every passing hour of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness, in self-pleasing, as if of no value, are deciding our everlasting destinies. The words we utter today will go on echoing when time shall be no more. The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven, just as the features are transferred by the artist onto the polished plate. They will determine our destiny. Uh, for bliss or for eternal loss. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes. So what is that telling us? What is being recorded in the books of heaven? Are we selfish? Me, 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 me. Have we died to self? Christ, Christ, others, others, others. It's the character. And then ultimately the character transformation results in works and deeds transformation. It's an issue of heart regeneration. The human race was saved in Jesus Christ. Spend some time meditating. Go back and read Desire of Ages from Gethsemane all the way through the resurrection. Powerful, powerful stuff. And you will get a reflection of what it is he accomplished for us. And then you think about us as individuals. Because of what Christ accomplished, each one of us, he becomes the connecting link, can be infused again with the righteousness of God. We can be partakers, as Peter says, of... The divine nature. This is a reality. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a model that, that, that keeps it one half degree away from our hearts. That it is something done legally in record books rather than an actual accomplishment, a regeneration, a process of restoration that actually happens in the believer. And I'm going to suggest to you the truth is something that actually happens in you. You get transformed, renewed, recreated, new heart, right spirit, the whole thing you can experience now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to redeem us from sin, from this terminal condition, from this horrible state of being, from living in fear and insecurity all the time, from always being focused on self and what's going to happen to me and whether people are going to like me and whether they're not going to like me and what's going to happen to my eternal destiny and all this self-reference stuff. You have come to destroy that whole ugly thing and to restore in us perfection of your glorious character, that we love you and we love other people and we go about thinking about how we can bless others and lift up others and we just pray that you will restore that righteousness in us, that we can love others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.